When you cast your vote in a national election, you do so expecting that those elected will act in the best interest of the country and of society. Sadly, this hasn't been the case in recent years when it comes to the South African Parliament. Auto compiled two reports on how members of Parliament failed in their oversight duties, thus paving the way for state capture. Matt Johnston, Atas Parliamentary Engagement Manager, recently shared Atas findings on this at the Zondo Commission. Matt, welcome. Please tell us a bit more about what you testified to Zondo about. Hi, Ilse. Thanks Thanks for having me. Um, so I was approached, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, by a senior counsel who was appointed by um, Deputy Chief Justice Zondo to look into parliamentary oversight and how that really interplayed with, with state capture and whether they whether they perform their constitutional mandate to make sure that money isn't wasted or stolen in the public sector. And I mean, just as a basic principle, I can tell you and people should know that Parliament's responsible for overseeing what people in the executive do, that, that including ministers. So, so they really, you can look at them in the sense of a board of directors as they would relate to a company. So, so they have oversight of, of the executives in, in the state as a company. And I, I took the angle of trying to recount experiences because between, I think it was 2017 and 2019, it was a period of two to three years that several inquiries took place. Some did and some didn't. Um, but we, we gathered evidence to see, you know, where did this originate? on the basis of what information coming from where did which presiding officers in parliament really delegate this work and say, look, these and these and these and these portfolio committees focused on specific departments, they need to now look into this problem because then it really came into the public sphere. And um, I personally attended many of those inquiries, those that happened, uh, most notably the, the inquiry into public enterprises which covers all the state-owned companies like ESCOM, um, SAA, and so forth. And, I mean, in a nutshell, I don't want to preempt uh, more specific questions that we'll probably cover later on, but, but there were many shortcomings. You know, um, many of those sessions were very substantive, um, most notably the one that I've just mentioned, but some of them were completely hollow. For example, the Portfolio Committee on Mineral Resources, which... which um, Deputy Chief Justice seemed to be particularly interested in, you know, as it related to ESCOM, Tegeta Exploration, um, companies owned by the Gupta family. There was supposed to be an inquiry held in Parliament as well, and really focusing on the former minister, Mr. Mosabenzi Zwane. And um, I attended those sessions, but but they they really didn't amount to anything. So. So the, the message I had to, to send from Alta's perspective, from a civil society perspective, you know, observing all these things that actually happened, was to answer the question, did Parliament do its work? And, and in brief, you know, my answer was no. 
it, it most certainly didn't. And one could see through it because there are records. Um, the Parliamentary Monitoring Group is another civil society organization that actually keeps better records of, of Parliament's meetings than Parliament does itself. That being another story, but also a problem. Um, so we used a lot of that material to, to go back because, I mean, I couldn't remember everything that had happened and everything that had been said. But I used that material to, to put together this document that basically just told the story chronologically, you know, over, over the whole period, compartmentalizing it into these different committees or portfolios. Um, and the message was that they hadn't done enough. Okay, before we go into detail, is when you say they haven't done enough, what exactly stopped them from doing enough, in your view? Yeah, so that's an important question. You know, um, the short answer is nothing, but the more uh, detailed answer is that there's a separation of powers, you know, between the executive, um, the courts, and parliament. They can't really dictate to each other what to do. So, I mean, in that, there's, there's obviously a little bit of a tension because, like I said in the beginning, Parliament's supposed to oversee what the executive does. So, they, you know, it's kind of interference, isn't it? So, there's a contradiction of powers. Um, and that's, that's a limitation that's often cited. I mean, for example, um, the fact that many of the issues that were raised in some of the, the inquiries that actually happened were also in front of a court or a judge. That was often raised as an excuse not to actually deal with it because there's this thing called the sub rule. And I mean, what it basically says is if something is, is before court and hasn't been resolved, then you can't, you can't really talk about it. You can't um, be prejudiced about that. But um, senior legal advisors in parliament contradicted that later on, you know, and said that's not, that's not a good enough excuse. So, I mean, there's, then there's the more fundamental problem. And this is what I actually focused on when I spoke to the deputy chief justice is it's the same political party that makes decisions in the executive that decides how money is spent. And that in our view, you know, not the, the, the political party as a whole, but some individuals in it facilitated state capture. Um, you know, built connections with really self-interested individuals in the private sector, like the Gupta family, and gave them access to public funds. Now, the, those people are part of the same organization. You know, they, they, they call each other comrades. Um, as the ones sitting in parliament, the majority, at least, of members of parliament are also from that same political party. And, and there's, there's a very obvious conflict of interest there. So I think, you know, and, and people before and after me in, in this commission of inquiry also said that this is one of the fundamental reasons why they, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Okay. The other thing that you brought up at the Zondo Commission was towing the party line. Um, I think after you testified, I heard at least one MP who also testified who said, I will always do what the ANC tells me to do in Parliament. But what was the impact of that party line allegiance? Mm -hmm. Look, it's an important question, but I don't think we should focus on the ANC because they unfortunately 
you know, illustrating the problem because they're in that position of power. But it's a systemic problem. Like I said just now, because people in parliament tend to be the political juniors of ministers and the president and, you know, the National Executive Council or committee of any given ruling party, they tend to do what they're told by chief whips and their political leaders, you know, and, and these people are really only in positions of parliamentary representation because the party that they are part of decided that they should be. Um, there's no vote as of yet, you know, for us to say who we think should be in those positions. So that's one thing. Then, yes, I mean, coming to the spe specific example of the ANC, towing the party line as a member of parliament is something that contradicts the constitution, you know, the constitution of the Republic of South Africa. But it's in line with the constitution of the African National Congress or any other political party that were to be so inclined, you know, to dictate to, to its members how they should and should not behave. Um, <clears throat> so that played a, a massive role. You know, many people said, and they made the statement very bluntly, that making decisions and speaking as a member of parliament based on your conscience is not something that you should do. In fact, it was discouraged. Um, and so I think that's, you know, a crucial factor in why this happened and why parliament didn't um, really fulfill its, its oversight role. Coming back to Auta's submission, what were the most interesting things you found? Because we are aware of certain things that happened. We are aware of Nkandla. I think that was the first time that we realized things are going wrong and that there's something cooking in parliament, so to speak. But according to you, what were the most amazing things you uncovered while putting together your submission? You know, th there's a lot to it, but I think if you take a step back, and and for me, as the personnel, actually being so immersed in, in the content of, of what we were saying, if you take a step back and just look at it objectively, this commission of inquiry instituted by the former president, you know, as a, as a functionary of the judiciary, now looking into parliament and the way it works, um, firstly, we were very happy and surprised that the Deputy Chief Justice took such a big interest in, in that, you know, and that he had the, um, he took the liberty of really investigating this, this aspect of state capture. That was warmly welcomed, um, to say the least. And, and many other civil society organizations were happy about that as well. But, you know, more specifically, why we were surprised and pleasantly surprised is because there have been some court cases you now refer to in Kandla, you know, especially at the constitutional court level, um, also relating to the impeachment and whether there should have been a secret ballot to try and impeach the, the former president. The constitutional court has made pronouncements about these things. And in many instances, they said, look, the way parliament conducted itself in this instance, we believe is not in line with the law. It's not in line with the constitution. That's as far as they can go. You know, and for me, going through this exercise, it was most interesting for me to, to really just get such a tangible sense of how limited we are as civil society, as the public in general, um, to hold parliamentarians to account. 
because you know the, the system is such that they can almost only hold themselves accountable and and the rules are des- designed in such a way and i mean the, the constitution is complicit in this sense that nobody can interfere nobody can dictate to parliament how they should do their work and how they should play their role in society and if its own members are out of line or if you know as we actually argued some chairpersons of portfolio committees in the national assembly are themselves complicit in state capture and and therefore shouldn't be in that position there's really nothing we can do as the public um this this forum that the uh, state capture commission um offered us is a nice exception to that but we've been trying to engage with parliament as as auto to raise these issues you know and it's very difficult because obviously you you you're speaking to the culprit as as an entity you're speaking to the culprit as a collective institution so um it's not amazing in the positive sense but it's amazing to just come to terms with how limited we are as as the public you know holding um government accountable and and this this example that i'm talking about is is something that was really a bit of a revelation to me and just sparked something in me to say but look something needs to be done about this if the rules prevent us from holding government accountable and holding parliament accountable you know besides being able to vote once every 5 years for a political party which i think is extremely limited um it's not you know as deep as democracy can go that to me just sparked this feeling of we need to do more okay let's just wrap up this part of the conversation if you say we need to do more what can we do more as citizens because we are told that we should hold our locally elected councillors accountable we all know how that goes um is there anything that we as citizens of the country can do to help with this process of holding parliament accountable yes i think so look the the benefit and this the advantage that corrupt people have in government whether it's at the local government level or in parliament or in provinces or in departments or in the presidency is that they organized you know and when pravin godan you know when he was ousted um, by the former president and he kind of embodied this um, resistance to corruption from within you know where, how authentic that is i couldn't say but what he said was we need to connect the dots and when people asked him how do we do that he said organize and i agree with that you know we as individuals can do very little i think um because government is a very organized machine and you know even though a lot of people are defeatist about this and i can understand why you know it seems like a hopeless situation but when we come together and when you become part of any organization you know out as a good example but any organization that is really focused on on doing this sort of work and confronting these issues um in any way that we can because i don't think any individual is going to solve the problem um we need to come together and support initiatives that that try to expose these issues and challenge them you know and if the example that i have off the bat is the there's a committee in parliament called the ethics committee um well that's the short name and it's responsible for ensuring that 
members of parliament are accountable, right? And that they conduct themselves in an ethical way. And we've, I mean, you should know this by what I've been saying by now, but we approached them with some really substantial complaints and said, look, yeah, here's our evidence. We say these individuals are not conducting themselves ethically and they shouldn't be members of parliament. But nothing happened because that committee's deliberations, its meetings are off the record. They're completely confidential. So we don't know, you know, why nothing comes of the things that we put forward and, and the problems that we raise. And something very intuitive that we can do about that is to change the rule. You know, we need to change the policy that says that they should be able to conduct themselves in secret so that people can hold them accountable. Um, so exposing things is, is a very intuitive first step. And I think the way to do that and then taking following steps of really um, challenging people and the wrongdoers is to be organized and to really immerse yourself in, in organized collectives that, that do this kind of work. And for people listening right now, you can become part of this by simply joining Outer and supporting us financially because Outer operates on a crowdfunded basis and we need donations, financial donations, to be able to take legal challenges and to um, do the things that we do. Matt Johnston, you testified at the Zondo Commission. Give us an overview of the things our submission to Zondo on failed parliamentary oversight exposed? Um, the first thing that we raised, you know, in the very beginning, in 2013, was the first example I could find of parliamentary oversight failing. And that was the, the Waterkloof landing of the Gupta family and their wedding guests in 2013. And just how exactly Parliament digested that. And, you know, the minister, the then minister of justice and constitutional development standing up and saying, um, the public protector is dealing with this issue and you don't need to worry about it. Saying this to members of parliament. You know, that's that's the first red flag that I highlighted. And moving on, you know, along the same golden thread, I referred to two former ministers, Minister Zwane and Mutambi, who was uh, ministers of mineral resources and communications, respectively. You know, these individuals being in parliament right now as chairpersons of portfolio committees, after so many heavy allegations that outer and other organizations leveled against them, um, that we believe they committed in their tenure, um, we, we just illustrated that they are now in these parliamentary positions and they face no consequences. You know, so um, these are just some tangible examples of zero consequences um, around parliament. And you are, of course, talking about people like Musa Benzi Zwani. His name features prominently in the Gupta Leaks. Alta even posted pictures of him in India on a Gupta-sponsored trip with a choir of his hometown, I think. And Zwani is also cited in the whole Frieda Dairy uh, corruption scandal. Another example of people we raised a problem with was Faith Mutambi, and she's also still sitting pretty as um, a very prominent figure in parliament. Yes, and the, the important takeaway from that, and I mean, Ms. Mutambi was at the SABC, for anyone who doesn't know. She was the Minister of Communications, and there was all sorts of wrongdoing happening there that she apparently condoned. 
You know, that's our allegation, but that hasn't been dealt with. And importantly, there was a dedicated ad hoc committee um, constituted in Parliament to deal with specifically that issue. And it made its findings, it made recommendations, and nothing happened. This, after that fact, um, an individual like that becomes, gets appointed as a chairperson in Parliament, which just shows this pattern of impunity you know, in a complete lack of accountability. And those are the kinds of examples that we really highlighted. As a taxpayer, I get the feeling that these people are thinking that they are untouchable and that they can do anything they wish and they will get away with, with it because they are being protected by fellow MPs. Am I correct in saying that is sort of the takeaway that most South Africans will, will have from this? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's a completely warranted perception. It's a warranted frustration. And I illustrated, you know, the salaries that people earn in Parliament, you know, a, a chairperson earning 1.4 million rand per annum, um, individuals who shouldn't be in the public service at all. And, you know, we're supposed to be looking at Parliament and get a sense of comfort, you know, a sense of relief that this is the institution that is supposed to be facilitating governance and government by the people. But it's not doing that. You know, the, the takeaway is that it's it's facilitating more government by the ruling political party. So that means zero accountability. And that's really the, the central problem that, that taxpayers are frustrated with. And it's completely warranted. And I think it's important to point out to listeners that we tend to think that taxpayers are those people who, who pay, pay as you earn and who own companies and who earn salaries. But literally every person in South Africa who buys groceries and pays 15% VAT uh, on that groceries or on the services they pay for, everybody paying VAT is a taxpayer. So I think it's also important for us to start thinking differently about who the taxpayers in South Africa are. That was just an aside. Matt, Matt I wanted to ask you, how was your uh, submission at the Zondo Commission of Inquiry received? What was the feedback for those of us who didn't watch the whole thing um, from Deputy Justice Zondo? And what was the sort of the after effect you experienced after testifying? Well, I think it was received very well. The Deputy Chief Justice just listened most of the time. And, you know, it was clear, as has been the case over the whole period of, of that process is he was just quite shocked. Um, and that's understandable. You know, for me, I, I say these things in a very kind of a blase way because you become desensitized. But the reception was just, you know, almost speechlessness. And, and one can understand, you know, if you aren't immersed in this stuff and you aren't on the ground, you aren't looking at it as it happens. It's, it's really jarring to hear. But the, the overall submission was received well. Ilsa, I'm not sure what exactly um, will be recommended at the very end. And our hope is that, you know, it's going to lead to something tangible. But it seems as though it sparked even more interest to delve a little bit deeper into some of the, the cases that we highlighted. And just an overall impression, I think, came across that, you know, Parliament isn't doing what it's supposed to. And, and someone in the position as high as he is, in the judiciary can actually do something about it. And I think he's going to try his, his very best to do that. 
What did Atta recommend to the Zondo Commission to do about this? So, I mean, there's a few things. Um, they're, they're more simple and straightforward examples like making the, the Ethics Committee of Parliament, which is really responsible for oversight of, of behaviour there among members, to make their meetings open to the public or at least, you know, transparent, that we know what goes on there and that we can hold those individuals to account as well. But then, you know, there's, there's broader recommendations that we made. For example, just the need for Parliament to really implement its own commitments. Because, for example, there's this thing called the Oversight and Accountability Model, which was drafted by Parliament itself, I think, 10 years ago. You know, and, and it's something that has a lot of good substance. Um, a lot of good intentions are there, but it hasn't been implemented. So we, we recommended that those things be implemented. But, you know, as, as a broad stroke and a more overarching suggestion, we said that there should, there should be more you know, meaningful opportunity for ordinary people and civil society organizations like us. But, you know, there's, there's many, many, many to, to come to the table and say, this is what we found. We really think that you need to focus on this issue. You need to do something very, very quickly about this problem because there aren't adequate opportunities for that. And I mean, lastly, um, out of the main suggestions we made, we, we said that there, there can't be this kind of immunity in, in parliament and people who come to parliament and testify because there, there is a piece of legislation called the Powers and Immunities of Parliament Act, which protects people who come to parliament and, and admit certain kinds of wrongdoing you know, especially high-ranking high members of, of cabinet and members of parliament themselves, um, protecting them from any consequences in effect. And we suggested, you know, that that legislation should change. Um, so there's a whole host of things, but also, I mean, more to the point, we, we suggested that people who have these unresolved allegations of corruption against them, you know, who've had these cases open against them for years and years and it just doesn't come to an end, that they shouldn't be in those positions, and that people who are tainted shouldn't be in parliament at all because it's contributing to this, this complete lack of accountability. I'm probably giving my age away by asking you this, but when I was in high school, I took history as a matric subject. Uh, that was, of course, the old apartheid parliament. But there was a rule in parliament that you can't serve as an MP if you have a criminal record. Was that rule completely abolished or is it just being ignored? And that's why we're sitting with convicted criminals or people accused of criminality in parliament. Look, I couldn't tell you, um, but I can say this. People getting a criminal record has very, very effectively been avoided. Think of Mr. Zuma, you know, the, the former president. He's managed to avoid proper accountability for so many charges against him for 10 years and more. But over and beyond that, you know, it's not, it's not only a question of what are the rules, because as you say, sometimes the rules are there. And I think, you know, we have great laws in South Africa. Um, very advanced, very progressive. Um, other countries sometimes look at it in envy, but when it comes to implementation, it's a completely different story. And there's no consequence because you need to ask yourself, is there political will 
to implement these things because unfortunately, you know, and this is at the core of the problem, it is a question of total discretion. You know, lots of the, the rules that we have, that one that you mentioned being a good example, are completely discretionary and it's up to the powers that be whether they're going to be implemented or not. And even if they aren't, you know, they almost in control of deciding whether there will be any consequences or not. And um, that's that's really at the heart of the problem. So whether that rule exists or not, I think there are many important laws and rules that are being completely ignored, and there's no consequence for that. And that's why I think, um, and I think lots of people agree with me and more people are getting on this, on this um, train of thought, the public needs to be empowered and politicians need to be disempowered because we've now seen what happens when the wrong hands are at the top. You know, that's what the former order general said. And the wrong, the wrong hands are at, at the controls of government and decide what happens in any event. So I think ordinary people in civil society really needs to be at those controls. And we need to at least have sight of the hands that are there and at the till and make sure that, you know, there's real responsibility and, and consequences when people disregard the law. Practical question. How do people do that? Do they do it by joining us and keeping track of our work? Uh, do they do it by reading more newspapers, by reading more reports? What would you suggest? Look, unfortunately, I can just illustrate the opposite. We've been paying taxes. You know, I myself, all of us pay taxes. And as you said, even people who are unemployed, you know, every time you spend a single cent, you pay tax on that. And that tax money has been channeled into all the wrong places. So, you know, I, I think we, we're going to aim at, at really getting to the status as well. But we as the public are financing corruption, you know, and that's, I think that's, that's a, just a, a wake up that one has to internalize. And then you need to say to yourself, well, you know, I'm financing this, not getting quality public services in return for the taxes that I pay. You know, even when you buy some fuel, some petrol, you pay tax on that. So for organizations like us to do the work we do, we need money. But we also just need support, you know, an actual, in principle, human support. So I think... As I said before, you know, getting organized, it can be difficult and it, it can be virtually impossible to make a change on your own. You can't do it. Um, none of us can. So becoming organized means contributing to, to an organization that's really focused on doing this work. If you can afford to do that, I think it's a big way you can make a contribution. Um, but as you said, also, you know, staying mindful of all the stuff and everything that's happening and talking about it, talking about it to your colleagues, to your family, to your friends, um, to strangers, you know, just keeping the public awake to, to the wrongs that are happening above us. You know, I think uh, secrecy has been one of the main weapons in the fight to resist any and all justice for, for corruption and maladministration um, and, and being politically active and not being despondent. I think and not giving up hope, you know, is, is also a very big factor and standing tall and saying that we can't accept this. We won't roll over. We won't continue to finance corruption. We would rather support an organization like Alta, like others, 
um, who are going to work against this issue. I think those are some good ways. Practically, we can we can do something. And if I may add, we are one of the countries in the world where things are going very wrong, but we still have the freedom of press and we have the freedom of speech. We can speak out and we can also support the media who speaks out. Thank you very much for your contribution, Matt Johnston. Matt is ATA's Parliamentary Engagement Manager and we spoke about ATA's submission on failed parliamentary oversight that Matt delivered recently at the Zondo Commission uh, into state capture. Thank you, Matt. I'm Ilse Salzwedel. You listened to a podcast brought to you by the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. If you like Outer's work, please consider donating to us by visiting our website at outer.co.za. You decide how much you want to contribute.